You're listening to a CNA podcast. The first batch of Thai hostages held in Gaza returned to their homeland. They have since reunited with their families. One of the most surprising things about the Israel-Hamas war for me was just how many hostages taken back to Gaza on October 7th were actually not Israeli at all. More than 30 of the approximately 240 abducted were Thai. That's the highest number of foreign victims. So far, 23 have been released. Mani Chirachat was one of them. What he's saying there is he still thinks about his friends who were shot, that he feels like he died and was reborn again. He sat down with CNA's Saksith Saisamba to share his story. And today, Saksith is sitting down with me. Hey, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Teresa, thanks for having me. This is an emotional story with a capital E. You met with survivors and families of those still missing. And I really want to know, Socks, why were they so willing to talk to you? I imagine the trauma that they endured is still very fresh. So what was their motivation? It was very difficult to set these interviews up with um, a lot of these people. And it because merely for the fact that you need to be really careful approaching them. So as you can imagine, when most of the hostages came back last year, there was obviously a very heightened media attention. A lot of media outlets were rushing to speak to those hostages. Um, Some media outlets who shall remain nameless were accompanying even them home, basically giving them a lift home uh, while they just got off the plane. Simply speaking, we didn't want to do that. I did certainly didn't want to do that. I felt very uncomfortable, even though, to openly admit, we had the, these discussions within the newsrooms as well. But mm-hmm. we want I personally wanted to take a different approach. So that's why we wanted to give them time to settle, to regather their thoughts, and then also carefully approach them, you know, seeing if they are still ready to talk to us or not. And Our basic first approach is not to talk to them directly, but talk to people around them, intermediaries, Mm. like, for example, to family members or to village heads, people in the community that have links to these people. And bit by bit, that's how we build up our trust and how we build up our approach to these people until we got to the point where they are willing to share these stories with us, while also be very clear what we can talk about, what we cannot talk about, Mm. what are certain red lines, and obviously... You have to be careful because these people went through uh, very heavy stuff. And even though I'm not a trained psychologist or a counselor, but at least we had some resources and training to be careful with these kind of people that they open themselves up, right? They are very vulnerable. So that's why we also have to treat this with a certain level of respect to that as well. Before we hear their stories of survival, we need to give listeners some context here. Like I said off the top, I was really surprised when I first heard that so many ties had been taken. But thousands actually work in Israel in communities and farms near the Gaza border, and they form the backbone of the agricultural sector there, don't they? Very much so. Uh, At the peak um, before the Hamas attack on Israel on October the 7th, 2023, around 30,000 Thai nationals were working in Israel, uh, in the whole country of Israel, mostly in agriculture, as I pointed out. And it's something that has surprised a lot of people. But if you look at the history, it's not actually that surprising or that much surprising because it already started 
over 30 years ago, after the first Intifada, which is the first popular uprising by Palestinians against Israel. And one of the direct consequences of that is that the Israeli state has phased out Palestinians from the workforce in Israel, including agriculture. And during that time, they were looking around, okay, from which country in the world can we get our migrant workers now? It just happened to be a match with Thailand. Since then, you had a lot of ties going over there, uh, work in agriculture or similar sectors. Uh, there has been a bilateral agreement formalized over 10 years ago. And since then, you know, the numbers kept going up and up. But that number kept going up until the Hamas attack on October 7th last year. There's one province in northeastern Thailand, Udon Thani, and it sends the highest number of migrant workers to Israel. You traveled there to meet a former hostage. Why are these people so willing to work in such a dangerous environment? How aware are they of the dangers? The easy answer why anybody would go to Israel from Thailand to work in agriculture sector is the money. I mean, you get a very high monthly wage, about 1,800 US dollars per month, which is a multitude, far more than anybody in Thailand would get in the same sector for the same work in Thailand, 50 times more than in the minimum wage in Thailand. 50 times. Yes, 5 or oh, 50 times. So yeah. that puts into perspective that that's why so many people go to Israel to earn a lot more money than they could ever do in Thailand. And it mm -hmm. gives them, of course, the financial freedom, the financial security to build up a life when they come back. And the program is usually limited to five years and three months. And then you can make a little bit of math and figure yourself out how much money they get over there. But when you were asking about the risks, usually when people sign up, they go through workshops or to briefings and they are being told, of course, like, yes, there are dangers in Israel. There is the occasional rocket attack uh, from Gaza, but usually the Israeli air defense system would shoot them down. But it's kind of played down then, right? The threat? In a way, in, in, in a way, it's being played down uh, because obviously you don't want people to get cold feet and chicken out at the last second, right? Mm -hmm. But having said that, when you look back into the past, there have been incidents where migrant workers, not only from Thailand, but also other countries have been killed by rocket attacks. But those are just very low numbers that happened every time. So, of course, something that has happened, like the Hamas attack on October 7th last year, that was certainly out of the ordinary. But despite the dangers, as I said, this program has been going on for quite some time. And we're going to hear from uh, Chumpon Jerashad, that's Mani's father. He was in Israel 10 years ago, and it goes to show that, you know, this goes way back, and he talks about his experiences, how it was like there back then. I was working on a kibbutz. I was clearing the leaves and tending to the gardens to make them look pretty. I earned good money, a high monthly salary, enough to build a good life for me and my family quicker. And this idea of a quick road to a better quality life, it's passed down through generations, right? Mani, who we heard off the top, he went to Israel after being inspired by his father. And he was near the end of a five-year contract when he was caught up in the war. Tell us, what was it like meeting him? When I met Mani and his family, he appeared very calm to me. But obviously, that's just on the surface. Right. So we sat down in an interview and obviously we made very sure again saying that, are you OK doing this interview? Are you OK to talk about these things that have happened to you? He said yes. So that's why we then proceeded with the interview. And then he told us what happened. He told us what happened on that very day when Hamas attacked him. I ran into the bunker and came out. Then after the second siren, we ran to the bunker again. That's when we ran into Hamas. 
They put us in a car. We were six thighs. Four were in a car. The other two, they shot dead. Money is not the only one we talked to. We actually talked to a lot of people, but concerning people that were in Israel and came back immediately after the attack in October, we also went into another part of the country. We went to Chiang Rai in the north of Thailand. And what we found out in during our research is that not only do you have a lot of people that are coming from the rural northeast, the San region, but you also had a lot of hill tribes, an ethnic minority, uh, ethnic minorities, plural, that are in the north of Thailand. And we met one man called Aye, and he also had a similarly harrowing story. But as you can hear, he managed to get out of the situation. Wow. But one of the militants didn't seem to want to watch over us and left with the others. Once they were gone, one of the other ties noticed that in the hurry, the militants didn't tie him up tightly enough. So he managed to free himself, found a knife and freed us as well and we managed to get away. Now, in November, the Israeli government and Hamas reached a deal for a ceasefire and for the release of some Israelis. But they said at the time that other nations would have to hold their own hostage negotiations. And Thailand had actually been doing just that. Saksith, you tracked down the main Thai negotiator involved, and he shared some pretty interesting insights into his parallel rescue mission. Can you tell us about that? Thailand actually had multiple different hostage negotiations and rescue missions because you also had the government, obviously, with mm-hmm. the foreign minister going to intermediaries, uh, third countries that are close to Hamas, like Qatar. You had the Thai army talking to the Palestinian embassy in Kuala Lumpur, even though that is a different faction than Hamas. But the main one that was most intriguing to me was the quote-unquote, private delegations sent by the House Speaker. You have to know that the current House Speaker, the President of the Parliament, one Mohammed Normata, is a veteran politician from the south of Thailand, which is majority Muslim. And he personally has links to Iran. That's why he sent his chief advisor to Tehran to talk to a representative of Hamas over there. And this chief advisor is called Aripen Utrasin, another veteran politician, a former lawyer. And he's very interesting, to say the least. He went there to see a representative of Hamas. But one thing that has to be emphasized, this was not a government delegation. This was a more or less private delegation that was sent to Tehran to talk to Hamas. And one angle that he found that he thought was successful was the common religion. When we met, I said that the House Speaker was sending his greetings, and this delegation was sent to, and I said it straight, not to negotiate. We were asking for the ties to return home. We did not ask for anything in return. We only ask as Muslims to Muslims, and as Thailand respects Muslims. And they also said they want the hostages to return home in order to tell the world the truth whether Hamas are the terrorists or not. There was another aspect that kind of intrigued me or that kind of stood out to me as well, that he didn't hide that he is pro-Palestinian. And also he said that Hamas has guaranteed him that the hostages would be unharmed. However, I confronted him with the witness account of money when he said that he was beaten, that he was physically assaulted, him and the hostages that were with him. And he flat out dismissed it. He basically said that it's not consistent with Hamas told him. So that also was something that was very interesting to me, to say the least. Hmm. Despite the ordeal and the very clear dangers that are involved, some ties still say, hey, yeah, I would go back in a heartbeat. Just why are they so willing to return? Again, the answer goes back to money, right? Because you had a lot of ties coming back, about Mm 9,000. So almost a third 
of those 30,000 and ties that were in Israel the last year, they were willing to forgo a high monthly wage. But then now that the dust has settled a little bit for them personally, I think there's also the realization for a lot of people, well, the money is too good to, to give up on that. So that is why there are some ties already either planning to go back or we have also heard from some people that are already back. We ran into somebody while we were in Qingrai and he told us, yeah, I want to go back. And he literally said, I want to fight another round. That's his literal words. And I think that was what's striking to me that he said that it is a fight for him. It is something that he's willing to take another risk for the reward of a potentially better life. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. But what about those who are definitely not going back to Israel? We know they're giving up a significant amount of money here. So what is the government doing to resettle, to compensate, reemploy these agricultural workers? Are they considering heading to other countries to work, maybe? There is right now a lot of different compensation schemes by the Thai government, but also by the Israeli government as well. They are worth several thousand US dollars, but they don't cover nowhere near the losses they would have incurred by foregoing that monthly wage. There are efforts by labor authorities to find them jobs, maybe retrain them for other sectors um, if necessary. But as you said, uh, there are also other people that are willing to go to other countries. Mani, for example, he basically said that he can imagine to go abroad again, definitely not Israel, but to other countries. Um, There are other popular destinations for migrant workers, such as Korea. Mm -hmm. So right now, at the time of this recording, eight ties remain in captivity, and there is at least one more who's missing. We just don't know what's happened to him. So what's next for them and for their families? The problem right now is, as we record this, there has been no progress in these hostage negotiations. Mm -hmm. Our security sources have basically told us that Hamas has basically shut the door. And they have slammed the door into everybody's face. Yes, of course, we do know that talks are ongoing, mostly through intermediaries and third countries like Qatar, but any direct contact by Thailand, by the Thai authorities or other entities, they have borne no fruit. So this is why we have to report by the time of this recording that at least eight Thais are held captive. There is a possibility that more are being held captive. We have talked, mm-hmm. for example, to a mother who is missing his son. She's convinced that her son has been taken by Hamas, but there has been no official confirmation. And, you know, to think about that kind of situation, it must be very harrowing that you have a loved one over there on the other side of the world. You are sure that he is taken, but you have no certainty whatsoever where he is. So that is obviously, of course, also very emotional for us to cover that as well. You talked to so many people for this story. You went to many places in Thailand. What did you learn from this story? I might repeat, Thai stories don't only happen in Thailand. They also happen elsewhere too. There's a diaspora out there where people are trying to fight for a better life. Like we heard from that one guy that is going to return. He wants to fight for a better life. And I think that is compelling to me because I'm the son of immigrant parents growing up in Germany. So this is why I felt kind of drawn into this story. That's why we have worked several months on this story. Mm-hmm. But it's fascinating to see that you had this bilateral exchange of migrant workers to Israel for so many decades and seemingly working very well. Obviously, there were problems. Obviously, there were reports about abuse, subpar working conditions, and unpaid overtime, 
exposure to very toxic pesticides. But these were underreported aspects of this story. And the whole situation of migrant workers in Israel wouldn't probably have gotten this broad attention if it wasn't for the Hamas attack on them. So now there's a wider attention to this story. But I also fear now, not only as this war drags on, but also now that most of these ties are back, that that kind of fades back into the background again. So this is why it was important that we want to release this story several weeks or several months later after the Hamas attack, so that basically we want to remind them, yes, the story in itself has ended, but life for these people still go on. And this is why we want to show that. Saxeth, thank you so much for the incredible account of what these ties went through and what negotiators had to go through to help free them as well. And we're all hoping that more of them return home soon. Thanks for having me. Be sure to watch Saxeth's TV reports on the Thai hostages on CNA Correspondent. It airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Also, find the latest news anytime at cna.asia. Thanks very much for joining us for this episode. The team behind it is Saya Wynn, Clara Ong, Crispina Robert, and me, Teresa Tang. Bye for now.